Hi listeners, here's something right up your alley. Two episodes from the incredible Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. Why is this something you'd like? Well, cult leaders may have more in common with con artists than you think, as perfectly depicted in what you're about to hear. So if you enjoyed these episodes, be sure to follow the series Cults free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Irma Hinkins held her son's clammy hand. 1964 was days away, and she never pictured Roger ringing in the new year from a hospital bed. She bit her lip hard to keep from crying and prayed for his recovery. 29-year-old Roger was in a coma for nine days with no sign he'd wake soon. Every time Irma heard sneakers in the hallway, she looked up for good news, but the nurses always headed to another room. Irma prayed harder. That's when she felt it. Roger's hand twitched in hers. She glanced up and found his eyes wide open. She inched closer to hug her child, but stopped short. Something was off. Roger's gaze seemed foreign. Timid, Irma asked Roger if he knew who he was. He replied, John. Tears welled in Irma's eyes as she wondered what was happening to her son. What if Roger forgot everything, including her? In a cold voice, he said he was John the Beloved, but Roger was still there. Distressed, Irma summoned a nurse. The next thing she knew, a psychiatrist came to examine her son. The doctor took notes as he questioned the patient. Suddenly, in the middle of the exam, John slash Roger shot up in a panic. He said a patient was coding in room 1614. He begged the psychiatrist to alert someone, but was ignored. The doctor knew room 1614 was on another floor, in another wing. John Roger couldn't be right. The next day, though, the psychiatrist returned. The woman in 1614 had coded and died. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. Today, we're diving into the movement of spiritual inner awareness, a New Age cult also referred to as MSIA, or Messiah. This week, we'll focus on the founder of the group, a self-ordained doctor of spiritual science named John Roger Hinkins. His polished public persona and comforting demeanor convinced tens of thousands that he had Christ-like abilities. But John Roger wasn't all peace, love, and understanding. In part two, we'll illuminate the cult's inner workings and examine John Rogers' heinous transgressions, including his penchant for violent punishment and his fits of sexual predation. We'll put John Roger Hinkins under the microscope after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Roger Delano Hinkins was born in the heart of Utah on September 24, 1934. Roger was a sickly newborn with yellow skin who suffered pneumonia in both lungs twice before he was six weeks old. But he persisted, and his mother, Irma, was thankful he was such a fighter. The Hinkinses lived a simple life. Roger's father, Parley, was a coal miner, and the family didn't have much. Their family didn't even have a toilet in the house, but having so little brought the devout Mormon family closer together. As a teenager, Roger and his brother, Delisle, attended church functions to shoot hoops and meet girls. Roger's best friend was always at their side. We don't know his real name, so for our story, we'll call him Eric. Eric was different from other kids. Roger felt Eric understood everything, and he trusted Eric with his life. The pair loved to go out dancing with other kids from church. It was the age of swing, and Roger was quite strong. He had no problem lifting girls or dipping them on the dance floor, but his time at church wasn't just social. By 1953, Roger, like all committed boys in the Church of Latter-day Saints, was an ordained elder. As an elder, Roger delivered messages to bishops, distributed the sacrament at services, and gave inspirational speeches during youth groups. Roger loved the church and his friends, but his adolescence wasn't entirely void of darkness. That same year, he faced a heart-wrenching trauma. One autumn afternoon, Roger went to pick up Eric. Eric's folks were running errands, so when the boy didn't come to the door, Roger let himself in. It was eerily quiet, except for the distant whimper of the family's dog. Roger called out to his friend, but there was no answer. Slowly, he made his way to Eric's bedroom, where he found the mutt with her nose pressed against the door. Roger scooped the poor thing up in his arms and called for Eric again. When Eric failed to answer, Roger slowly twisted the handle and entered. He found Eric, dead and hanging from a noose over his desk. It was clear Eric took his own life, but instead, Roger told Eric's parents that their son had slipped and hit his head. Roger may have lied to protect Eric's parents from a harsh truth, but this deception may have also been an early sign of a serious mental health issue. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. 
Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In their study about the psychopathic traits and their relationship with the compulsive nature of lying, psychiatric researchers Bruno Verschuer and Willem Hout said, psychopathic individuals are often portrayed as naturally born liars. Deceitfulness is adopted as a key feature by many clinicians, arguing that childhood predictors of adult psychopathy involved those who lied gratuitously and showed little guilt over their behavior. While every child tells a little white lie here or there, Roger's lie to Eric's parents was deeply troubling. Since no one held Roger accountable for his lie, he likely believed he could pull it off again. Eric's death had a tremendous impact on Roger in other ways as well. He had trouble making new friends and spent the next few years feeling lonely. Roger turned inward and from this point on claimed to have tapped into a mysterious clairvoyant energy. He said he could see and understand people's auras, supposed fields of energetic color surrounding human bodies that communicate truths about a person. One afternoon around 1947, 14-year-old Roger went to greet his aunt, who came to visit his mother. As she walked up the drive, Roger noted her disturbing scarlet red dress. The outfit seemed to scream at him, but once his aunt was inside the house, the dress turned bright blue and green. When Roger shared this with his mother, she laughed. She said it must have been Auntie's aura. Auntie was searching for a husband, and her aura was angry red because when she finally found him, she'd kill him for making her wait so long. Despite being able to read people's auras, Roger kept his distance. He made acquaintances well and was still outgoing, but wasn't sure how to get close to anyone new. When he graduated high school in 1953, he decided to attend the University of Utah for psychology. To put himself through college, he worked as a night orderly in a hospital psychiatric ward and as a dispatch operator for the Salt Lake Police Department. Though his schedule was grueling, Roger worked at his church, too. He helped missionaries who'd spent years in developing nations adjust back to their own society. But the missionaries complained to the church leaders about Roger. They claimed Roger strayed from the Mormon teachings and was unwilling to stick to the orthodox Mormon tenets. Upon hearing the missionaries' concerns, the bishops asked Roger about his teachings. In response, Roger said there was truth in the Mormon church, but there was also truth in everything else. Roger said he found truths in nature and even in other churches. The bishops disagreed. Feeling unwelcome, Roger decided to broaden his spiritual horizons and left the LDS church. By 1958, 24-year-old Roger had earned his Bachelor of Science degree in psychology. He knew if he wanted to experience different faiths, he needed to move to a more diverse city. So after receiving his teaching credential, he packed up his belongings and drove to San Francisco, California. To Roger, the city by the bay had it all. It was a veritable buffet of different spiritualities, and Roger wanted to sample each one. He studied Eastern philosophies and participated in cultural experiments. Roger examined Buddhism, astrology, and even the Church of the Churchless, a group that explored mind expansion through psychedelic drugs and practiced meditation while standing on their heads. In 1960, Roger landed a job as a high school teacher just outside of Los Angeles and moved once more. 
In Los Angeles, life got even better for Roger, as he enjoyed his new job immensely and got close with a few co-workers. But life threw Roger another curveball. One summer evening in 1963, as Roger cruised along Hollywood Boulevard, he cranked up the radio and rolled down his windows. He noticed the Warner Theater marquee advertising how the West was won. He slowed to check the movie times when, out of nowhere, a pickup truck slammed into his car. Roger went spinning. His face was hot. He tasted metal. He didn't know what was happening. Suddenly, a voice asked him if he was okay, but before he could answer, he blacked out. Coming up, Roger awakens and steals a well-known New Age guru's teachings. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1963, lapsed Mormon Roger Delano Hinkins was badly injured in a car accident. After his initial recovery, the hospital released him. But a few months later, he was urinating blood. When Roger returned to the hospital, doctors discovered kidney damage that had previously gone unnoticed, and they rushed him into surgery. The operating room would forever alter the trajectory of Roger's life. During the operation, Roger said his soul drifted high above his body. Looking down on the procedure, a parade of spiritual figures confronted him. Each spirit communicated the same message. They told Roger his spirit was rebellious and chosen to do great things. On the heels of the procedure, Roger suffered a delayed recovery from the anesthesia and fell into a nine-day coma. During this period, he said his soul left his body again to make room for a different spiritual personality. The new soul, called John, eclipsed Roger. When he woke, he found his mother praying over him. She asked him who he was, and he replied, I am John. She asked, is Roger there? And he said, yes, he's in here too. Roger told his mother that John was the beloved and showed him the highest good. Right then, he changed his name to John Roger so people could address both spiritual personalities. While these spiritual experiences seemed largely positive, John Roger's mother asked the hospital to have a psychiatrist assess her son. During the psychological evaluation, John Roger shot up in a panic. He blurted out the room numbers of critical patients he said were about to die. The next day, the psychiatrist stopped by, perplexed, he told John Roger he'd been right. On the eve of 1964, John Roger had another encounter. While sleeping, he convened with the dead Salman Singh. Singh's spirit said he was still officially the wielder of a rare energy known as the Mystical Traveler Consciousness, or MTC. Whoever held the MTC existed simultaneously on all planes of consciousness. According to John Roger, the MTC needed a vessel, a man to help lead followers to spiritual freedom. That New Year's Eve in his hospital bed, John Roger said Singh passed the power of the MTC to him. The mystical traveler chose him to mediate between God and humanity. He took his role seriously, and the next day announced a vow of poverty and celibacy. Irma finally took her son home a few days later, too nervous to leave him alone. She stayed in his house for months, nursing him back to health. In the winter of 1964, 30-year-old John Roger returned to his high school classroom in LA. The student body knew him as Mr. Hinkins, the cool teacher. He often ditched a curriculum of Shakespeare, Dickens, and Bronte, 
to instead lecture on self-hypnosis and heightened consciousness. Initially, the school principal appreciated John Rogers' eccentricities, but word spread that Mr. Hinkins strayed too far from world literature during class. While some students enjoyed his approach, others complained when he turned the lights off and led uncomfortable meditations. One afternoon, the principal decided to see if there was merit to the kids' rumors. When he opened the door to John Rogers' classroom, it was dark as night. The lights were out and the windows blocked. It was just as they said. Though the principal was generally calm, he couldn't help but explode. He flipped the lights on, broke the students of their trance, and fired John Roger on the spot. Out of work and determined to live up to his post as anchor of the mystical traveler consciousness, John Rogers set out to deepen his spiritual practice. He found a connection with a growing New Age group called Ekankar. The group, founded by San Diego guru Paul Twitchell, taught lessons that were in line with John Rogers' beliefs. Twitchell told his followers they could experience their true selves separate from their physical bodies to roam different planes of reality. It was almost as though Twitchell lifted the thoughts from John Rogers' mind and organized them for him. By 1968, 34-year-old John Roger was hosting Ekankar meetings in his home, but he needed some way to support himself financially. He advertised that he could channel Guru Paul Twitchell's spirit and performed incantations as Brother Paul for money. Those involved in Ekankar knew Twitchell was still very much alive and said channeling a living spirit was impossible. While John Roger lied, Twitchell never went after him. So once again unopposed, John Roger carried on for another three years. In his seminars, John Rogers shared the whole of Twitchell's teachings, as if they were his. John Rogers' theft of another organization's doctrine was one more arrow indicating sociopathic tendencies. In her article, What is a High-Functioning Sociopath?, Kimberly Holland said, the sociopath has little regard for another person's emotions, rights, or experiences. They lack remorse and act in ways that show no regard for others, including lying, cheating, and manipulating. Despite generally not enjoying people, they display impeccable social skills. This was true for John Roger. Without any real friends, John Roger relied on former students to host small gatherings in their homes. They said he emitted loving energy, and his sense of humor was disarming in the best way. Naturally, when he asked for help pushing the doctrine, his former students enthusiastically agreed. Handfuls of men and women gathered to hear John Rogers' spiritual advice. He spoke of helping others achieve personal transformation. They were enthralled by John Rogers' message and told their friends. Each attendee paid a love offering of $3. The small gatherings grew into more extensive seminars, which evolved into a series of lectures in hotel conference rooms. The hotel workshops drew significant crowds, sometimes of 50 or more. John Roger and his posse caravaned across the country to host their classes that promised a spiritual renaissance. At $3 per person, John Roger raked it in. Despite his vow of poverty, he realized he had a cash cow on his hands and decided he wanted more. John Roger convinced disciples to ask for larger donations on his behalf. In fact, he procured a giant grant from the son of a tycoon and roped a pair of siblings into giving him their inheritance. 
In 1971, with cash in his pockets and close to a thousand followers throughout Southern California, John Roger officially formed the Movement of Spiritual Inner Awareness. He called the group Messiah for short. It ensured its status as a tax-exempt nonprofit. Word of mouth spread, and Messiah members started popping up throughout the state. It didn't take long before members flew in from Miami, then England, then as far away as Romania. With each phase of growth, John Roger implemented new programs. He offered subscriptions to soul awareness discourses, volumes of booklets about how to heal the world by healing oneself for a fee of around $40. Across the country and beyond, followers met in their homes to talk about the movement. John Roger recorded audio cassettes and shipped them to Messiah hosts so members could hear his voice each week. They chanted, sang along with, and danced to the recordings. Then hosts sold copies to their guests. The tapes were full of phrases like, out of God comes all things, or the soul is the energy of God and therefore cannot be lost. But they also taught the central tenet of John Rogers' message, the transcendence of the soul. John Rogers said one's brain, emotional life, and physical being existed only to experience higher levels of spirituality, and he never failed to remind members that they needed him to reach enlightenment. By 1971, John Roger initiated a program to ordain ministers who proved their loyalty. First, a candidate had to complete a few simple prerequisites like learning ceremonial yoga poses and committing the proper chants to memory. Then they could join a two-year program known as the Sound Current. Once in, they proved aptitude through spiritual exercises like journaling and chanting ancient Hindu phrases. Once an initiate completed the sound current phase, they became a minister of light. Since Messiah was an incorporated church, ordained ministers performed rituals like baptisms, funerals, and marriage ceremonies. John Roger also tasked this elite group with finding better ways to market their message. He wanted to reach people of all demographics and ages. He had t-shirts made and even commissioned a children's book that painted him in a positive light. But John Rogers' warmth and magnetism only masked his greed. For instance, the cassettes he used to spread Messiah's message came with a warning on the label. Listeners must purchase their own tapes. The label stated if a member allowed a borrower to listen to his tape, he'd become responsible for the borrower's negative energy. Furthermore, Messiah devotees were encouraged to buy the church's books, inscribed jewelry, and ornaments. Members paid for various services and gave a healthy percentage of their wages to the organization. But because the movement was technically a church with tax-exempt status, it never had to make its financial records known. The setup made it easy to spend without scrutiny. And despite his vow of poverty, John Roger had no problem with spending the movement's money. In 1974, the organization purchased an estate on historic West Adams Boulevard near the University of Southern California. The property boasted a giant Renaissance mansion, which John Roger called the Purple Rose Ashram of the New Age, Prana for short. The mansion served as a massive dormitory for 100 or so Messiah members at any given time. As the group acquired more assets, it seemed prudent to expand. So a gaggle of Messiah ministers founded Golden Age Education. GAE was a separate tax-exempt entity from the church. 
It was purely an educational organization providing monthly symposiums on topics like Egyptian mysticism, acupuncture, and the mind-body connection. But GAE struggled financially. In 1977, its net revenue was only $90. Faced with the threat of bankruptcy, 43-year-old John Roger had an idea. He'd encountered a successful New Age group called LifeSpring, and they taught healing through humiliation. LifeSpring manipulated members into reliving their worst moments to achieve a sense of peace. John Roger found the lessons inspiring, so he hired one of their trainers to tailor LifeSpring's methods to fit Messiah's language. He called it Insight Training Seminars. Nobody knew he stole LifeSpring's curriculum because he crafted a beautiful lie. On the eve of Insight's inaugural seminar, John Roger gathered his ministers. He announced he'd just returned from a mission to Hawaii. John Roger explained that while in the Aloha State, the mystical traveler consciousness called a meeting on the island's highest mountaintop. There, John Roger met Buddha, Krishna, and Jesus. Together, these guides created Insight Training and sent John Roger home to teach its principles. Though outlandish, the ministers accepted the story as the perfect sales pitch for Insight. The initial workshop was called the Awakening Heart Seminar. The workshops were mainly about compassion and comfort, and ministers taught that each soul must evolve in its own time. Attendance cost a few dollars, and financially speaking, the classes were a grand slam. At the end of 1978, GAE's gross revenue totaled $1,094,679. John Roger seemed unstoppable. He then created Insight 2 and 3, the children's and adolescent training groups, and a run of wilderness training sessions. Some members said the courses left them feeling magically high. And John Roger hoped to capitalize on this high. At the end of the sessions, once trainees were emotionally open, John Roger asked for donations, claiming he'd give their money to the disadvantaged. The message was so compelling that Insight trainees sometimes raised over $75,000 in a single session. By the end of the 1970s, the movement had morphed. John Roger was living high on the hog. He and his entourage ditched their old sedans to fly first class to seminars in the best vacation destinations. Followers wrote him letters and love poems in hopes he'd respond with blessings. The crazy fan traffic inflated John Roger's ego. Soon, his veneer of kindness started to erode. In private, John Roger displayed fits of rage and acted strangely, often breaking out in tantrums. The more his popularity grew, the more terrifying his outbursts became. Before long, he was off the deep end, ranting and raving every night about a demonic harbinger of negative forces who wouldn't leave him be. He called the monster the Red Monk. Up next, the monk's true threat becomes known. Now back to the story. In 1978, the vessel for the mystical traveler consciousness, 44-year-old John Roger Hinkins, came up with a scheme to make millions. He plagiarized the maxims of two other New Age organizations, Ekinkar and Lifespring, and passed them off as his own. Still, his movement and acclaim grew at a swift rate. But John Roger's skyrocketing fame seemed only to deepen a sense of loneliness in him. 
and given his other sociopathic tendencies, this inner isolation may have pushed on Roger towards intense addiction. Kimberly Holland said, high-functioning sociopaths come off as charming and warm while hiding behaviors. They display impeccable social skills, feed off admiration from others, and often experience addiction to gambling, sex, alcohol, and drugs. In his book, Life 102, What to Do When Your Guru Sues You, former Messiah devotee Peter McWilliams said, John Rogers' bathroom shelf was lined with hundreds of bottles of prescription medications. According to McWilliams, John Roger was addicted to booze and nasal spray that gave him a lift. He sniffed nonstop during workshops. He also couldn't get by without his daily doses of narcotic painkillers. If a disciple was involved in the healthcare industry or could write prescriptions, they became John Roger's new best friend. He praised them for their spiritual progress, then followed up with, how about a script for that? John Roger claimed when liquor passed through his lips, it turned to water. But his followers didn't seem to care. They just thought he was a good time. Though he was surrounded by followers and employees, he remained forlorn. He needed to satisfy his desire for intimacy and wound up requesting the company of his staff at all hours to fend off a demon he called the Red Monk. To John Roger, the Red Monk was a diabolical spirit who carried contagious, dark energy. He said if the Red Monk inhabited any member of the movement, all involved would come under its threat. John Roger was deathly afraid of the Red Monk because the monk could strike at any moment. He was most vulnerable when he slept, as he left his body to save the universe and right energetic wrongs. He told a few of the most handsome young ministers within the movement, many of whom he had met as teenagers, that he needed guards to protect him at night. Because John Roger was the be-all and end-all to these boys, he had no trouble rounding them up. They believed he had supernatural powers and was essentially God. But John Roger didn't get what he wanted just because they thought he was God. He also had a unique ability to hone in on their innermost desires. If they wanted fortune, fame, or to be healed of some illness, John Rogers saw it. He just needed something in return. Even though John Rogers' followers believed he'd taken a vow of celibacy, he figured that since he'd already broken his vow of poverty, he could have sex despite his vow to stay pure. John Roger offered to honor the young men with sexual acts. He told the guys if they held the seed of the traveler in their bodies, they could never be lost to God in any dimension. While he claimed that he garnered no pleasure from sex, he wanted to offer them his intimacy as a spiritual gift. The young men soon believed sex with John Roger was necessary to ensure salvation. When a young man wasn't interested in sex with John Roger, he had a plan to convince them anyway. He told them their resistance was nothing but fear. He said if they seemed disgusted or confused, it was because they were scared and they'd never reach their astral potential. John Roger worked tirelessly to hide these practices from the rest of his followers. He used intimidation tactics and psychic bullying. Whatever it took to get the guys to keep quiet about his sexual encounters, he did. In fact, each guy thought he was the only one sleeping with John Roger. That's how good he was at keeping secrets. If one of the guys ever asked to leave, there was hell to pay. Such was the case in 1980, when John Roger's favorite young staffer asked if he could move out. 
To protect the victim's identity, we'll call this staffer Samuel. Samuel was loyal to John Roger and felt he owed him everything. After all, John Roger took him in to live in Brentwood when the boy was a teenager, and the two formed a close bond. But when he asked John Roger if he could move closer to the college he hoped to attend, the mystical traveler flipped his lid. Samuel endured John Roger's fit for hours, but enough was enough. He had to leave if he was to finish his education. From the grand staircase, John Roger threw whatever he could find at the boy, a vase, a book, his shoe. Still, Samuel opened the door and braved the rain to get to his beat-up sedan. But John Roger followed close behind. As Samuel opened his car door, John Roger pulled his belongings from the back seat and threw them into the mud. He screamed at the boy not to abandon him, for he was abandoning God. Samuel tried to collect his wet, dirty things, but John Roger kept screaming and destroying the boy's property. Finally, he said Samuel was stealing from the church, stealing from God. He swore he'd never let Samuel take church property. John Roger tore pages from the kid's books and ripped holes in his shirts. Then, without remorse, he said Samuel would forever be damned. He pushed the boy against his car and spat in his face. Through sobs, Samuel tried to fight back. He begged his guru to stop. He begged for his undying soul. But John Roger grabbed Samuel's things and carried them back towards the house. He said if Samuel wanted his stuff, he'd have to pay $100 for it. But the boy had nothing saved, as he had volunteered for the movement for two years without pay. He asked John Roger where he was supposed to find the money. But John Roger huffed and said it wasn't his problem. When he saw Samuel buckle in tears, he yelled the boy should take it up with his new master, the Red Monk. With that, he turned and left the kid to shiver in the rain. Inside, John Roger ascended the grand staircase. He felt no remorse casting the boy out, just the drive to move onward and upward. It seemed the Red Monk truly was taking over, and its sinister influence would soon bring John Roger and his group to its breaking point. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of John Roger Hinkins, The Movement of Spiritual Inner Awareness. We'll take a closer look at how he used his station to manipulate members for sex, money, drugs, and status well into the 1980s. We'll also examine how he came to run with an A-list celebrity crowd. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Cults was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.